Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yi, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today our guest is Rui Costa, an HHMI investigator at the Champs-Élysées Center for the Unknown in Portugal. We'll be speaking with him about using transgenics to study complex disease, the neural mechanisms underlying habit learning, such as piano playing, and keeping cows as pets. All this and more coming up. We're here with Rui Costa, an HHMI investigator at the Champs-Élysées Center for the Unknown in Portugal. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Costa. Hi there, Ada. How's everything? Good. Thank you so much. Um, all right. So usually we like to start the interview by um, uh, hearing a little bit about your background. So um, I understand you grew up in Portugal. Can you maybe tell us uh, uh, what what life was like growing up and if you were uh, interested in science as a kid? Yes. Yeah, so I'm um, I'm from a rural area in Portugal, in the mountains, in the northeastern part or center east, close to the border with Spain. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's an area um, that has a lot of nature and so as a kid I I loved animals and animal behavior and I had a lot of contact with nature Mm -hmm. and I like things related to to math and counting and uh, but um, but I I mean I didn't know science as a concept didn't exist you know right science as a career didn't wasn't something you thought about it was you know I was I was scientifically inclined if you mm-hmm. if you want to say but it was mostly you know I, I was curious uh but no one no one there was no one that was a scientist that we knew growing up and uh it wasn't something people would talk about but uh, i loved animal behavior and how animals behaved and so i would go out and uh and I would bring a lot of injured animals home and mm. things like this. Nurse them back to health. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so, I guess that kind of leads into what you decided to do, um, at least initially. So I, I heard you actually trained as a veterinarian, which is actually something really neat. We actually have a number of veterinarians in the uh, neuroscience program here at Stanford. Um, and, and so I guess uh, I assume you went to, to vet school because you liked animals. Did you enjoy being a vet? So yeah, I went to vet school because I I, I like animals and I liked animal behavior, and uh, a bit naively because in my tenth grade biology book there was a little box with a veterinarian from Peru that was supposedly working at uh, NASA on the trying to discover like forms that could lead to life in other planets. <laughs> I thought this is great. Being a vet is great. You can. You can research things and you like animals. The vet, vet career was very tough uh, because I came more from chemistry and physics, but uh, it helped me a lot because, so, um, well, I liked the outdoors. I was then, I, I practiced as a, as a large animal vet, a mm-hmm. cow vet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but our part as, as, as vet students was I had to do practicals and reports, so basically experiments and reports and those experiments. I had oral presentations of my work, and I had written presentations of my work. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, 
I feel it did prepare me a bit for, for science in retrospect. And it gave me, what was interesting, it gave me an organismic perspective of behavior. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't looking like at just the brain or just hormones or just, you know, the whole organism worked as a whole. Mm -hmm. And and I, I heard that you actually did some research. Uh, I don't know if it was during vet school or after uh, studying behavior. Yes, in my final internship, I went to Sweden to study animal behavior. So I could do it in research or in, in clinics, and I chose to do it in research. And I studied suckling behaviors across a variety of species, but um, ended up publishing a few papers just on uh, suckling behavior in, in, in cows, which was uh, very interesting, you know, uh, from a physiological perspective, but also I was using things like optimal foraging mm -hmm. theory, which was very cool at the time. You know, it was trying to see if animals would suckle in an optimal way based on the physiology of how much milk would become available at the, gang, uh, at the gland. Do they shift when resources at this gland, you know, if they go around suckling when these, you know, there's no more milk or it's starting to get scarce and it's more of, and it's amazing how they time it. It's really mm -hmm. amazing. And so at what point did you actually think that um, you no longer wanted to be a vet and that you would want to actually just pursue research by itself? Because it actually sounds like being a vet was a very interesting experience. It was very, it was very interesting because um, you're outdoors and I love the animals, but, you know, uh, sometimes you have to deal with things that are not only the love of the animals, and, and it's frustrating uh, if people don't care so much about what to do, you know, for the welfare of the animals. And so, uh, but more than that was really, I really loved the science when I was doing research in the animals in the wild, and I, I decided I want to do research. And this was accumulating in me uh, while I was working, and then I, I decided to quit and actually go, uh, go pursue research. Do you remember that moment? Yeah, I remember exactly that moment. It was a, it was a New Year's mm -hmm. Eve in uh, 96 to 97 at 10 p.m., and I told my employer that I'm <laughs> wow. like really a new resolution. <laughs> Did they? I had no. Jo I mean, he understood. It was a the, you know, it was right. the boss was a um, a person, but they knew I was interested in science. You know, I did many things in the job. There were like new formulations of food, new ways of doing things. So they knew I was right. always trying yeah, to do new things. But it was. It was a moment, you know, I quit and I had no other job and I had no PhD program, nothing. I just thought, well, I'm going to quit. I saved up some money and I'm just going to apply to go into graduate yeah. school. Yeah, and so that's exactly what you did. Um, so I guess the path, uh, maybe you can explain to us your path from there. So eventually, I think you were in Portugal for a little while after that, and then eventually ended up in the States in um, the lab of Alvina Silva, who's actually also um, originally from Portugal. I'm not sure you grew up there. Um, yes. Can you tell us yeah, how you, why you got in touch with him, how you got in touch with him? So I entered this program from the University of Porto, sponsored by the Portuguese government. It's a graduate program that would pick... Uh, odd people mm -hmm. like me, you know, and uh, 
and then say, well, here you have one year of classes, and then you can go do your PhD wherever you want. So I felt very fortunate. I got a stipend, a fellowship, and then I remember uh, because I had interest in animal, animal behavior, and Alcino Silva had been the first one then in the laboratory of Susumo Tanegawa in 92 to create a mutant mouse that affected behavior, in fact, memory in, in, uh, so in the whole organism, right? So changing a tiny protein in the brain affected, and I thought, wow, this is cool. This is what I, 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 I want to do this. And so I applied to his lab, and I went to UCLA to do my PhD, and it was wonderful. Those are some amazing times. It's the early days of using uh, transgenic yep. animals. I mean, that's something that's ubiquitous almost now, uh, at least in mice. So, um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about the work that you did when you were there. So you actually started out by uh, working on the mechanism behind a disease called neurofibromatosis. I think that's right. Um, and yes. uh, so I'm not sure our audience, everybody would be familiar with this disease. First, can you just tell us a little bit about... Um, how this disease is manifested in patients. I know it's a genetic disease, but it has a lot of symptoms. Is that right? Yes. So it's a, it's a genetic disorder. I was interested in memory, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. at the time. And so, um, and Alcino had also interest in memory and interest in, in this disease because it was, now we know more about other genetic disorders, but it was the most common single gene disorder that caused learning disabilities. Huh. So learning disabilities as not like mental retardation, but specific impairments in specific areas of learning. And so we thought, well, this is great, right? We should study this because we have a handle into this. The problem is, as you mentioned, uh, NF1, neurofibromatosis type 1, is a disorder that has learning disabilities, but also other problems like tumors. And so the first study that I did was to try, you know, to use a mutation on a specific part of the neurofibromatosis type 1 gene that actually caused learning disabilities, but the mice had no tumors or developmental problems. And so it kind of set the stage. It was the first time where we thought, well, this is dissociable. The learning disabilities are dissociable from the other symptoms. It's not like undetected tumors in the brain or, you know, something like that. Um, and so it, it gave us hope to study functionally the disease. Right, because the problem is that many people might look at the disease and say, oh, well, you just have a brain tumor. That's why you're having trouble learning. Exactly. Um, you have undetected brain tumor or you have which is still today, you have a neurodevelopmental disorder. So you have a problem with development. There's not much we can do after you've developed. Mm -hmm. And so at first blush, it actually sounds like a really tough thing to dissociate those things as you did creating a mouse that, that only had the um, cognition kind of dis deficits. Um, but I actually think you used, uh, you really took advantage of some of the molecular knowledge of that, of that molecule or that gene, NF1, um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, maybe. Yeah, so there was, there was a, a particular, I mean, this, this is always a collective mm -hmm. effort of a big, the Neurofibromatosis Type 1 Foundation put a lot of effort in attracting scientists to study this. So that was great. Then the NF1 community became closed. And Cami Brennan, 
who unfortunately passed away, she had generated a mouse that had a mutation, lacked a specific exon that was right on the middle of the NF1 protein. In the part, NF1 is a RAS GTPase activating right. protein. So it actually, you know, makes RAS less active. And, and RAS is a protein that's actually really famous in the oncology field. Exactly. But these, these it turns out RAS and a lot of the RAS uh, genes are expressed in the brain and serve functions in the brain. And at the time, you know, we thought, well, maybe the same, um, the same type of uh, functions that... Uh, happen in oncology cells, the same type of molecular pathway is used by neurons for other functions, right? And so we went after this RAS function of NF1. And the first thing we did is with that mutation in one particular exon, we were able to actually have mice that had no obvious tumors, mm-hmm. right. uh, but they still had altered RAS gap function and they had learning disabilities. And then what we found was actually that in the in the normal mutants, the heterozygous mutants that have mutations like in the disorder, there was increased activity of this RAS gene, the oncogene, but it's not an oncogene in, in neurons. It is, uh, at least in these neurons, it was, what it was doing is in the inhibitory neurons was responsible for increased inhibition, so increased release of GABA, and so and that affected then plasticity, at, you know, at at uh, excitatory to excitatory synapses, for example, and other things. And the proof that this was it was because we could cross the NF1 mutants with mutants of the RAS gene and rescue the behavior and the inhibition, and we could also give a drug that's actually, you know, an oncology drug mm-hmm. that reduces RAS activity and we could reduce, you know, normalize uh, the electrophysiological and the learning properties. These all in the adult, right? So this, uh, this was very interesting at the time and showed that NF1 had a function in uh, the adult brain. And actually then as a general principle, many other disorders that are thought to be neurodevelopmental, in some of them we know now that the protein continues to have, uh, the protein mutated, uh, continues to have a function in the, in the you know, the post-development brain. And this mm-hmm. was very important at the time. I see, I see. And so, of course, this had a lot of uh, therapeutic kind of interest, as you said, in, in addition to the kind of basic interest. And so um, I, I did have one question. So my understanding was that um, like even though most of the patients of this disease um, do have uh, cognitive deficits, it's not all of them, so it's not totally penetrant. So could you tell us, did your mutant is your mutant actually something that was found in human disease, or is it, or, or did most of your mutants actually all of your mutants show the cognitive deficits? No, so it's very interesting. Yeah. It's exactly the same penetrance. So there's a part of the you know. And we, we found modifier genes, I mean, we found genetic backgrounds that were modifiers, others found the modifier genes, but the penetrance is exactly, uh, in the mice, was 60%. Uh, and in fact, 40 to 60, to be more precise, because it varied from cohort to cohort, mm. actually very similar to humans. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, uh, so that was really great work, I think, in the sense that um, you really were using some uh, genetic tools to kind of parse out uh, not only disease um, and learning and memory, um, well, yes, basically <laughs> disease and as well as basic learning and memory. Um, but then you kind of switched tracks a little bit after this. So, <laughs> um, so you went to, uh, you contacted um, another well-known researcher, Miguel Nicolelis at Duke, yes. um, also a Portuguese speaker, but I guess not from actually Portugal. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and so uh, so the Nicolelis lab is actually known for its work in BM, uh, BMI, brain-machine interfaces, and also a lot of primate work. Um, okay. And and not exactly the kind of work that you were necessarily doing when you uh, finished your uh, work with uh, 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 Dr. Silva. So can you tell us why you wanted to go there? Um, what, what Why would you contact such a different lab? So uh, part of my frustration mm -hmm. uh, was that in mutant mice, we could at the time, you know, generate all these type of mutations. We could do pretty sophisticated electrophysiology in vitro and uh, we could do behavior, but from the in vitro physiology to behavior, there was a big gap. So I thought maybe doing imaging of the brain, but at the time there was no like awake behaving mouse imaging, or not much, it was just starting, or doing recordings from the brain would help. And at the time, you know, uh, Matt Wilson's lab had recorded in awake behaving mice from the hippocampus, but I wanted to record in different uh, areas on the same animal, right? And so Miguel Nicolelis had done that in the primate and in the rat. So, so just to pause, you wanted to record in different areas in the same animal at the same time. Yes. Not just one isolated brain region. So, and he had done these in, in uh, he had done these in primate and rat. And so, you know, I contacted him uh, well, it would be great if we could do this in mice. And I remember at the time he was like, let's, let's move on it, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's, uh, that's the future, right? He used a Brazilian expression, you know. Let's go ahead because there are people coming, <laughs> which means let's, let's move on it, right? And so because I, other people are, are wanting to do this too, probably. No, what he said is because this is the way. It, it means like because this is the way if we don't do it, someone else would. I see. Got you. Um, and, and so I guess the idea was that you wanted to do it in mice because you wanted to be able to use the genetic tools you'd used before um, and also to be able to record from different areas so you could get a whole picture of the circuit. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to try to do exactly what I would do in the slice, you know, record from two yeah. areas, but now in vivo and, and then combine in vivo, ex vivo, genetics, behavior, you know, very <laughs> ambitious at the time. Well, what were some of the difficulties about doing this in the mouse? I mean, what kind of challenges? Obviously, nobody had done it yet, and why hadn't they done it? Well, the people had done it for one area, right? But, right. Uh, we using tetrads. In these areas, tetrads uh, were usable but didn't give a lot of yield. So we designed microarrays based on the technology that Miguel had, and Miguel had a good lab. And so I paired up with another postdoc, Dana Korn, and we tested a bunch of designs in mice. I was mostly testing these, but she had a lot of experience from rats and others from monkeys. And so the part was miniaturizing and finding the right materials and the right impedance of each electrode to get the things to go. But then when it worked, 
uh, I just did a, a, I mean, I must say simpler study in a simple task, which was just the accelerating rotor rod, and I could observe the plasticity in motor cortex and the sensory motor striatum in the same animal as animals were learning this task. Right, two components of the same circuit while they're learning exactly. this simple task, um, which I will come back to that in a minute. Um, I think it relates very well to some of the work you do now. Uh, but I also want to talk about another study you did while you were there. So once you had this up and running, um, it was very exciting. You went ahead and, and put it to its best use, which is actually using it in some transgenic mice. So um, you used it in um, a DAT knockout mice. Yes. Um, maybe you can tell us the relevance of, of using it in that particular mouse and what you were trying to do. Yeah, so at the time, you know, this mouse is a mouse that lacks a dopamine transporter, so it has more dopamine in the extracellular space. So if you place the animal in a novel environment, they are hyperactive, in fact. But now the dopamine that's released in this animal comes only from the novo synthesis because they don't have reuptake, so they cannot reuptake the extracellular dopamine and repackage it and release it. So in fact, if we use now an inhibitor of dopamine synthesis, a tyrosine hydroxylase inhibitor, in fact, we could create in about 10-15 minutes a mouse that had 0.2% dopamine. This so was nothing. Yeah, and so it was like mm -hmm. an inducible extreme Parkinsonism. So this was ideal, you know, and this was Mark Caron had the mice, and we paired up because, so imagine, I could record in the striatum and cortex while and follow this, the activity of the same cells in a high dopamine state and in very low dopamine state, and I could examine the function of dopamine in the circuits. And, you know, the hypothesis at the time uh, was, well, still the very prominent textbook hypothesis, lack dopamine, you increase the activity of indirect pathway striatal neurons, you decrease the activity of direct pathway striatal neurons. This reduces in increased inhibitory output of the basal ganglia, which reduces activity in thalamus and cortex. So we expect we're going to see less cortical activity, and some neurons in striatum will increase their activity. And we saw nothing like that. <laughs> were you were you were you worried when you saw nothing, or were you intrigued? I, I was I was worried. I have to say I, I'm <laughs> first, uh, but but there was something very weird right away. Right, so we didn't see a, an alteration on the average firing rate of M1 at all. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of synchrony developing. So these you know a lot of correlated activity, which had been reported by. Peter Brown in, in humans and by Haggai Bergman in primates. So then I'm like, okay, this makes sense, right? So it's not so much that it's the motor cortex like becomes less active. It's a matter that now these circuits, dopamine is controlling the synchrony or the variability in the circuits and affects the action selection process. And can you just explain, I think sometimes for cellular-minded uh, people, understanding synchrony is a little tough. So the way you measure this is LFPs, is that right? So we measured both with action potentials of the cells and with the LFPs, which reflect a bit the action potentials, but mostly the synaptic input. But it's maybe easier to explain with uh, action potentials. So typically, if you record in uh, in the cortex, for example, uh, there are some 
amount of neurons that are correlated with each other. Uh, in the striatum, actually, our basal ganglia, very few neurons fire, you know, correlated in time, meaning when one fires, the other fires, right? But once we deplete the dopamine, neurons started firing at the same time, you know, in a correlated manner, and actually oscillating, so being like discharge, then later on another. So basically, many neurons started firing in a synchronous manner. And the same conclusion could be done with the LFP. Mm -hmm. and, and so this is interesting. So obviously this is something that you seem to think is related to pathology in Parkinson's, but kind of like the basic uh, function of this kind of synchrony. So maybe to a naive mind, I might think that, okay, why would, it seems to me like synchrony would take some kind of energy, maybe it doesn't, um, and then normally it's disrupted, it's only when you remove the dopamine in a pathological state that you generate this, I mean, what would be the purpose of, of having a synchron underlying synchrony and then disrupting it under a normal state? Yeah, maybe so I imagine that you have a lot of pacemaker neurons in the, in the basal ganglia, right? Not in striatum, mm -hmm. in fact. And basically, mm -hmm. uh, in the striatum, the neurons don't fire a lot, and when they fire, they actually, the purpose, if it is action selection, as we think, many people in basal ganglia, you don't want all the neurons to fire at the same time. You want the mm -hmm. neurons that are going to facilitate the action you want to do to be active and others to be suppressed. Mm -hmm. So now imagine you are actually going to activate many of the, these neurons at the same time, you're going to get activation, a lot of muscular activation, and in fact, you know, rigidity and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. So you can't select a particular movement to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the lack of uh, synchrony in your mind is, is, is used for action selection? Mm, the, I, I wouldn't say that there's a use. I think it's more okay. the reflection of the normal function. I see. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not saying there's no use. I think in this case, it's just a readout. What I think normally happens is when dopamine comes in, the medium spiny neurons, if they are receiving glutamatergic inputs, they actually can become more excitable at that moment and fire, and then they go on to be quiet, right? And so that's the moment of selection, those fire. So imagine if you don't have a lot of uh, dopamine, you you actually just fire when you have a lot of glutamatergic input coming in synchronously. And so this could be, it's a complex, you know, circuitry, the origin of these oscillations, but you can um, imagine how that could produce these abnormal synchrony. I'm not saying that this synchrony and asynchrony are the normal functions. These may be reflective of the underlying processes of selection that are going on. So when you select something, you don't want many neurons uh, being active at the same time. Okay, so it's more like maybe uh, we usually aren't, you know, we're not total, always moving around and initiating. Most of the time we're just sort of at rest, I guess. And then, you know, Yeah, so, you know, if you, if you are in slow wave sleep, that's how actually these uh, Parkinsonian mm -hmm. mice look like. Mm. So, okay. but they were awake. Yeah, right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, after you did all of that work, 
Um, you actually went on to NIH to start your own lab, but uh, you were only there for a little while. So about eight years ago, you actually uh, moved back to Portugal um, to, and this is an amazing name, the Champilamal Center for the Unknown. Uh, yes. I think that's a great name for an institution. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to go back to Portugal and a little bit about uh, the lab, you know, why, why you wanted to start a lab there, I guess? So, you know, I was at NIH and I was happy. Uh, mm-hmm. I could do a lot of interesting things and start, you know, new ways of thinking about the 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 basal ganglia. Uh, but after I was there for a few years, this gentleman, Champalimo, who was a very wealthy uh, Portuguese, donated one-third of his wealth to generate this institute in Portugal, this foundation. And then uh, they, they thought of uh, investigating uh, neuroscience and cancer because these were the two most uh, the two areas affecting mostly human health. And uh, through some meetings where I participated when they were visiting in the States, I get to meet the, got to meet the people in the foundation, and they invited me to, to come and help uh, setting it up. And uh, I was like, okay, I'll go. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. like, it sounds like a unique opportunity, and then I, I right. did. Yeah, it, sounds, it does sound very exciting. Um, and uh, good to give back, I guess, a little bit. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so some of the work that you did in your own lab, starting at NIH and also uh, in, in back in Portugal. So I, I think this kind of comes back to what you were saying, that initial study when you, when you developed the microarrays for in vivo awake mice. Um, the first tasks that you tested these on were um, a simple motor task called the rotor rod. And so for those that don't know, this is a technique where I guess the mouse just stands on a rod that that's, has a motor attached to it, so it's constantly spinning, and sometimes you can accelerate that rod, and the mouse just kind of like, I guess I think of it like a bicycle, you know. In right. order to stay on that rod, they've got to keep moving, in, and they better, the more stereotyped and more streamlined their movements, the better that they get at staying on that rod. Um, and so, so can you just tell us a little bit what you actually found when you looked at these mice, looked at both the striatum and cortex in, um, in those, uh, when they were doing that task, and then how you followed up on that later in terms of uh, subregional cell type kind of change, specific changes? So in the simple task, what we found is first we were able to follow, follow single cells throughout learning mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. found that they actually would change. Um, and actually plasticity between cortex and striatum changed. Another thing that we found was that early in training, the activity in cortex and striatum was very variable, like as if you know, you're trying different things, and with time, it became very stereotyped, like the behavior. Mm-hmm. So we thought, this looks like trial and error, or trial and selection. So mm-hmm. that led us to then go to tasks with more complex patterns to test, A, what helps generate variability or novel movements or to try, and B, how do you select specific patterns that work? How do you stereotype behavioral patterns? You have mm-hmm. to stereotype the neural patterns that underlie that behavior. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, maybe this cortical striatal plasticity has something mm-hmm. to do with it. And so we've done a series of studies to test that. And it seems indeed that plasticity right. between uh, cortex and striatum is mm-hmm. critical for 
uh, selecting and consolidating or stereotyping, if you will, particular yeah. behavioral patterns and neural patterns. Right. And, and just to go into a little more depth, so, so right, you said you moved on to these more complex sequences. Um, and I just, I thought this was so interesting when I was reading about it because the rotor rod makes me think of riding a bike, but the more complex sequences, I mean, so often, you know, I'm interested in plasticity um, in part because... You know, I played the piano, and I would remember learning these very complicated yeah. pieces. And, you know, so, so, you know, you think, oh, maybe I have to study, you know, the hippocampus or memory or something very complex. But, you know, you actually use the piano as kind of a, a metaphor know, in some yeah. of your papers. So can you maybe tell us about some of these complex uh, tasks that you're teaching the animals and maybe some of the um, specific discoveries you've made um, with that? So it's, it's very interesting if you think about mm -hmm. playing the piano. And also about most of our actions, we actually, a lot of what we do are sequences of movements that we stereotyped into modules, right? And so when you, if you play well the piano, if you do a scale, you actually just have to think about starting it and then you've automatized it. So what we did were tasks where individual, imagine early on animals had to press levers like if they were individual keys of the piano and then we ask them to do it faster and faster or in a more automated way until you say okay if they've automated these they actually in terms of neural activity they should have a lot of neurons just related now to initiating the whole sequence because then one movement predicts the other if you're within Imagine within a scale in the piano, if you do 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 you just need to do tongue, right, the first one, and then the others follow, right? So then we went and uh, so animals can learn these sequences. And when we went and looked in the, the cortex and especially in the basal ganglion striatum, we found many neurons had activity just, you know, related that treated the whole sequence as one unit of action. So I... Mm -hmm fired at the beginning or at the end, or they had sustained fire, firing throughout, so sustained activity throughout the whole sequence, or they were inhibited throughout the whole sequence. Yeah, and so for, for those neurons, if we want to use, you know, to anthropomorphize, it's like if now the whole sequence of individual key plays had become like one movement, so mm -hmm. one module, right? So what you didn't see, I guess, were neurons that were specific. So if you had five different lever presses, you saw sequences that kind of, or neurons that fired a lot right before the first one, yeah. maybe after the last one, but nothing very specific to what was in between, second, third, fourth. Yeah, exactly. So nothing in between to what was in, uh, although there are neurons, of course, there's neurons that have activity related to the individual movements. But a lot of it became in, you know, like kind of chunking these into a sequence. And over so, time. Over time, you know, as I you see. learn. And so that was like, okay, that's the plasticity. <laughs> so that's the role of the plasticity is to actually make these uh, movements more organized into sequence. Yeah, yeah. And I was just curious how intuitive this was to you at the time because – I mean, now that I've, re I've read your paper and I thought about it, I was like, yeah, when I had to memorize a piece, if I forgot in the middle of the piece, in the middle of the recital, it was over. <laughs> but um, And it makes sense if there's neurons that are for the entire sequence and not just each individual note. Um, so so was this something that was surprising for you? So it was very interesting. Early on, yeah. you're looking at the behavior. 
in these sequences looking at every key. Actually, Shinjin and I were discussing, and I remember my suckling studies. In my suckling studies, I divided the sucklings into bouts or sequence. You know, they would not do one single suckle. They would do a little bout, right? Uh-huh. So, you know, we were discussing, like, let's separate the presses into bouts or sequences of presses. Let's look at these, the structure and... He's like, yeah, I have it here. So once he plotted it like that, it became, bam, apparent. That's really neat. So <laughs> your vet training actually really, really, really did uh, <laughs> come in. <laughs> and and that is, that's also a learned behavior, the suckling. It's yes. just innate. Well, I see. The, the movement of suckling is innate in the sense, you know, there's a, it's pre-wired and then they, they practice also in the womb. But the sequences then, you know, imagine how long they stay in a particular gland before shifting to others, then that's learned. Mm-hmm. So it's not the movement of suckling, but like how many times to suckle before shifting and things like this. Got it. I see. Oh, that's amazing to think of suckling, piano playing yes, <laughs> in the same boat, same neurons. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> And also, uh, a lot of your work actually comes in the context, so as you mentioned, there's kind of a lot of, um, so for example, in Parkinson's, there's a, there's a very ca- kind of canonical textbook model about these go versus no-go pathways that get imbalanced uh, during something like Parkinson's. Um, and I think you kind of, so you might have to help me understand this a little bit. So the classic go, no-go, indirect versus direct pathways, you know, they're thought to be very separate, but you actually found that um, those different pathways were not uh, that different in terms of initiating a sequence? Is that right, my understanding? So what we found is that they were both in... So one hypothesis, you know, the more straightforward would be to say, okay, this pathway was supposed to be go, so the neurons that are active before would be on the go pathway. This other is the no-go. These would be the ones that get quiet or that stop the sequence. And it wasn't like that. It was like more like both pathways were co-active before the initiation of a movement. And so, how could this be? Well, if we think not so much as go, no go, but as selecting the appropriate movement, then the direct pathway could be involved in selecting exactly what you want to do. Let's say it's that sequence in the piano. But there are many similar sequences, right? If you play the piano. So the indirect pathway would be coactive, actually helping to inhibit competing sequences, right? Mm. And so that was, we're still working a lot on that. That's a hypothesis, but some of the data seems consistent with that. Sure, sure. So it seems, yeah, it seems like a rich area of exploration for the next couple of years for many people. Um, I also wanted to ask a little bit about, let's see, I I guess more about, so now you've done, you've had the, most of your recordings of these large ensembles. You've actually been able to see a lot with these large ensembles. Um, You know, but you do have an interesting piece of data where you showed that in um, mice that were lacking NMDA receptors. So these are um, receptors on synapses that are are famous for their role in um, plasticity or potentiating the strength of synapses. Mm -hmm. Um, And and you actually showed that in those mice there were some differences um, in some of the recorded behavior yeah, exactly. that you see. And so is there, is there any like uh, goal of yours to start to go back to kind of this more um, precise circuit level synapse, synapse yeah, yeah. plasticity? Yeah. Yeah. So we, what we did was we deleted the NMDA receptor specifically at the cortical striatal synapses. And so if to form these sequences, uh, 
you would need the that plasticity, then animals should have a difficulty doing this, and this is exactly what happens. Animals can do lever pressing, but they never become like more stereotyped, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So right. it's like you can play the piano, but you never like quite reduce the variability on how you do it. It never sounds quite always the same. And so we use these specific mutations to test that. And also then we do kind of a BMI, a brain-machine interface paradigm, where we say, okay, so but is it necessary if you don't even need to execute a, a movement just to select a particular pattern of brain activity? And mm -hmm. So we did a brain-machine interface in, just, in which just the brain activity would give the mice reward and deleting the NMDA receptor specifically from those synapses also impeded the animals from, say, stereotyping their neural activity. So this led us to the conclusion, and this is part of what I'm going to talk about, that the plasticity in these circuits is necessary for the selection of the appropriate patterns, the reinforcement of the appropriate patterns. Right, right. Yeah, so I guess I guess maybe let's move a little bit into what you're currently doing. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about um, technology. So, yes. uh, so obviously, you know, a large part of your uh, work has been to to really pioneer using these multi electrode arrays recordings um, in in the mice. Um, and I think it was interesting in that paper you had said something like, um, at this time, you know, imaging techniques are it's hard to get at the questions that we're trying to answer with imaging techniques. But now you're doing some imaging, so you can can you uh, tell us a little bit about what your what kind of technology you're going to have to use now? No, so at the time we couldn't do this, and then we started imaging the activity of specific neurons through fiber optics, like bulk imaging, and then we started developing. Uh, microscopes or techniques to try to see individual neurons. And then I was at a meeting uh, where Mark Schnitzer was also, and he was presenting these microendoscopes that he was using. And I said, well, why, like, let's try those. And uh, I've been using them uh, for now a few years, and they have been absolutely amazing because now we can record many the activity of many neurons of the same cell type in the behaving animals. Uh, like by way of scale, how many more neurons are you able to record? Mm. So uh, like, for example, dopaminergic neurons, it's very difficult to record. So I'll give you an example. We usually do, we do photo identification using optogenetics. So we recorded nine neurons in eight mm -hmm. mice in mm -hmm. one year. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Right. And then uh -huh. we did imaging. And in the first mouse, the student had 10 neurons. In another mouse, 20 neurons. In a mouse, the mouse, 30. This is dopaminergic neurons, which are really hard to record from. In the striatum, where we can record 100 neurons of a specific pathway at the same time. Uh, I mean, in hippocampus and cortex, people like Mark Schnitzer, who's there, records really hundreds but even in the striatum, to record 90 or 100 neurons simultaneously, all of the direct pathway or indirect pathway, it is amazing. Like, we can do really many different things. We haven't done yet multi-site as with the electrodes, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that will be really exciting mm -hmm. uh, when you do. Um, so, yeah, with that, can you actually just give us a short preview of your talk? 
Okay, so without uh, saying much, uh, <laughs> and you you kind of get that I think that learning happens through trial, and then selection of what works or reinforcement of what works. So I'm going to talk a bit about what I think some of the mechanisms that lead us to try new things behaviorally and neurally uh, are and what the mechanisms of selection of particular patterns are and how you form these uh, motor sequences or motor chunks. Okay, great. Um, we look forward to hearing about that. All right, so just before we close, I just have three. We have a little section we call rapid-fire questions. Yes. I'll ask you three very brief questions, um, and then just feel free to answer with whatever comes to the top of your mind. Yes. All right, so the first question is, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Rui, as a graduate student or vet student or whatever it may be, uh, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> the advice that I would <laughs> give myself is um, trust. Uh, be be patient and calm, and trust good work. It it will always pay off. Mm, that's great. Um, all right. Second thing, uh, as a vet, I wonder: Do you have any pets at home? And if so, uh, maybe tell us about one of them. <laughs> yes. So uh, not currently at home because I live in 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 Lisbon, but uh, we have a small house in the village where uh, we keep some cows and sheep with my dad and my uncles and I I like all types of animals cats uh, dogs uh, we always had dogs I don't have pets in the apartment because with my life I don't want to cause them <laughs> pain but I I do have um cows uh, as pets which is very strange so I, I <laughs> walk in the fields and I pet the cows they are nice they come they recognize individually uh, my daughters and uh, we recognize them they have family they have names and they they are cute <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a very calming thing yeah. to have around um, all right and then tell us one thing we should know about Portugal the people I think it's a wonderful country in terms of nature but the Portuguese people I mean there are many uh, not so good things but one good thing is people are generally calm and giving and, and they are the hospitality is great so I invite everyone to come and uh, <laughs> spend some time <laughs> it's a country with a good spirit yes um, alright well thank you so much again for talking with us today really absolutely I did. thank you so much and thank you all for listening we hope you'll join us next week when our speaker will be Wade Regger professor of neurobiology at Harvard Medical School Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. It was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Luis Giam, Eddie Alboran, Andrew Gundren, Yet Nguyen, David Lipton, and myself, Eddie Yee. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Ada Yee.